John, we played around a bit with the format of a cheetah hunt that I was very lucky to witness out in the Eastern Cape a few months back. So why don't we start with a little bit of that and then I can come back and we can describe and chat about the actual safari experience itself. In a beautiful valley in the Eastern Cape of South Africa, wildlife broadcaster Fergus Keeling is enthralled with the sight in front of him. Thank you. They're watching cheetahs. Right to your extreme right nine behind the Inside the truck, Julius the guide, two German tourists, and his brother. They are all very unsuspecting. Is she standing or sitting or what is she doing? Oh yes, I well no actually I just see a little unfortunate antelope over there which is which is looking very unsuspecting it's over behind the bush yes the cheetahs have the humans full attention but the cheetah mum is deep in her own thoughts are hungry. The boys took more than their fair share of meat at the last killing. Gets you a flavour of it, doesn't it? Yes. It's lovely listening to that again. It brings me right back to that evening where we had driven out from our lodge in the Karoo in the Eastern Cape and this a private game reserve called the Samara Game Reserve. And um, although I've done many safaris, John, professionally and privately, I, this was a, an occasion where I was right on top of a cheetah hunt, very, very close. And I think you were slightly taking the mickey out of me there using the word unsuspecting, but it was the word that came to mind as I started to record in the, in the, in the Jeep because uh, a female cheetah with four... Uh, large cubs, cubs on the verge of being um, weaned, I suspect, a male and three females. Um, and she had spotted uh, a baby eland running at the back of um, a herd of eland. And of course, she, her whole posture and demeanor changed from one of lying and lazing around in the sun um, as the sun went down to essentially uh, that the hunt position where she sat up uh, the, you can see the head go down, the ears go up, and the intent staring as she's watching what's happening and looking back over her shoulders occasionally. You suspect to tell her youngsters to sit and uh, and keep quiet. Uh, look, I'll come back to the hunt in a minute, but I, I, I want to just set the scene of where I was and, and what I was doing. It was my 60th birthday, and my brother had decided um, as a lovely birthday present, he, he knows how much I love Africa, that he was going to take me out to South Africa, to the Eastern Cape. And uh, a family called the Tompkins family about 20 years ago decided to buy up uh, a huge amount of land. In fact, 11 farms um, out in the Eastern Cape. And there, you can imagine, uh, actually it's something like 70,000 uh, acres. It's a vast area. And over the course of um, the first 10 years, they pulled out all the fences and they moved on all the cattle and the goats and, um, and the sheep. And a lot of the vegetation that had been planted by farmers over the previous 
100 years. And they, they were able to let the land almost lie fallow for um, 10 years. This, of course, uh, was an area of um, East Africa that used to be teeming with wildlife, much like the Serengeti. But there was no indigenous wildlife in it at all, save for a few uh, baboons and, and vervet monkeys. And then over the last 10 years, they have slowly reintroduced the species that would have been there. It's an absolutely fascinating place. Uh, what an amazing they... initiative. Amazing initiative for someone to do that, um, you know, off their own bat, as it were. Yes, and obviously these people are incredibly rich, but at the, at the forefront of their mind is the restoration of a wonderful natural habitat. And in fact, I, I think it probably um, deserves the, the title of uh, Serengeti of the Eastern Cape. Uh, they've introduced... Uh, zebra, they've introduced uh, elan, they've introduced the Cape Buffalo, there are of course Wildebeest and Gemsbok, etc, etc, etc. There are a black and white rhino now here and just a, a few months before my arrival they had introduced a, a family herd of, uh, of six elephants. Now, the, the area is so vast, it is uh, it's, it's like a huge amphitheatre surrounded by very dramatic mountains. Um, and there are a number of habitats. There's grasslands, there's savanna, there's there's thickets. So they've been able to populate these various areas with various species. Does it still feel like, uh, you know, what you must imagine Africa was like before man almost? It's very easy to, to get that sense because uh, driving up from a place called Jeffrey's Bay where we were staying, we had a three or four hour drive um, north uh, of South Africa towards Port Elizabeth and beyond. Um, and and the, the landscape changes as you're climbing, climbing, climbing. I think it's over the Drakensberg Mountains. And then you have to drive three or four miles off-road from the, from the, the gate, the safari gate, uh, uh, almost on a dirt track as you come to the lodge. And you're, you're coming closer and closer to these mountains. And, of course, Mountains tend to make you feel smaller as an individual anyway. But it was a beautiful morning as we drove in. Sun had just come up, mountains rising into the sky. And uh, as we're driving towards the lodge, you I just said to Peter, stop the car for a moment. And we could hear baboons calling in the early morning uh, sun, uh, calling to each other and obviously moving up the mountains. And you just, you just realize that you're going to have three or four days of the most immense... Uh, pleasure watching wildlife and being out in the wild and realizing that yourself that you're a very very small part of this landscape you know you love nature and and many different parts of the world but i've known that you've always been drawn to africa and uh, that sort of savannah wildlife what is it about it i think some of the earliest television programs uh life on earth comes to mind it was obviously the first big bbc um mega documentary and of course Attenborough the ultimate communicator so that was on air as I was doing my A levels and I I was doing biology chemistry and physics and I ended up of course as you know studying zoology but but that program itself was on at the time when I was doing an old fashioned degree in zoology with some old-fashioned zoologists who instead of uh, nowadays it's all about ecology and biochemistry and applied sciences they were teaching us about the animal kingdom for the animal kingdom's sake and for science's sake. And so I, I just had a hankering 
that Africa was the place that I wanted to go and, and watch large mammals, especially. And then the first time that I went for the Natural History Programme in Radio 4 with my colleague, Miles Barton, out onto the Maasai Mara, we were following a group of um, African wild dogs. And I, we, we just stopped at one stage and I started to talk to the vet beside me about his uh, uh, knowledge of the old Divai Gorge and where early man is supposed to have evolved from. And you very much get that sense because the whole of the savannah is littered with bones. And you think, now, if I step out of this Jeep, I am going to be dinner for something or someone. And it, it, just, it just strikes you. I know it's a cliche, but the, the cradle of humanity, you really can see yourself climbing down out of the trees and walking upright. And uh, I've been interested in human evolution ever since, and I am absolutely fascinated by Africa and about the wildlife in it. Do you know what? You're right. I, I think we, uh, you know, who are lucky enough to have food in the West, we kind of, um, our life is too easy. And very occasionally in my wildlife adventures, I've uh, felt uh, like food, <laughs> like I am the food. I got stuck once in Canada and, and I had to walk through um, the snow back to town and there were polar bears around and I felt like I was on the lunch menu. And that's not a feeling you usually get, is it? No, it isn't. And, and uh, oddly enough, um, um, as my brother Peter and I were driving in, he said, and by the way, the biggest, the biggest surprise I have for you is not bringing you here. It is the fact that this, this place specializes in walking safaris. And you know, I quickly checking right. Do they have lion? Do they have cheetah? Do they? Um, and uh, uh, again, although I've been out in safari professionally, you you don't walk very far in landscapes like that before you could be in in mortal danger. And yeah. the, the 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 morning afterwards, we did actually go on our first walking safari uh, because Julius, our guide, had said that there was a white rhino female with a calf uh, about a mile from us, and. Um, they, of course, know where all their animals are at any given time. They triangulate because they have uh, spotters. And he said, right, let's walk very quietly towards that. You do not want to walk towards um, a, something as big as a rhino and certainly something as big as a rhino with a, with a baby calf. But you're with professionals. They keep you upwind, uh, sorry, downwind, I should say, definitely not upwind, so the animals can't smell you. Um, rhinos are well known for not having great eyesight, but they're very good hearing. And, and as you're walking towards an animal and, and you're walking behind someone in single file, there were four of us, and his hand goes up occasionally for you to stop and, and start and stop. And this is typical savannah scrub where there are bushes that you walk behind a bush and you see another group over away and you walk a bit more, a bit more. And then suddenly you just, he says, stop. And he says, look. And you look and you can't see anything until you get your eye in. And, and suddenly this giant gray boulder just move slightly and there's another smaller gray boulder moving behind it and and within a minute we were standing facing the most enormous and it is enormous when you're standing and it's not behind bars or you're not behind bars of a white rhino and a calf and she's st standing staring at us it was the most exceptional moment um and you you tend to lose your fear as you just stand still and realize that if you stand still that you're not threatening the animal eventually eats another little bit of scrub and then takes its calf and trots off in the other direction. Yeah, it's wonderful. I uh, envy you that. 
Do you know what, what we should perhaps do is to concentrate now a little bit on that, uh, yes. on the cheetah encounter that you had. So what we're doing here is experimental, both in the podcast and, and also in the way that we're doing the podcast. You know, um, we want, we've always liked uh, doing imaginative things. I know that you write, Fergus, and you, you wrote a script. I picked it up. And it sort of works. And so we've, we're putting it out there just to see what people think. But um, <laughs> one of the criticisms is that, that the uh, female voice of the cheetah is my voice, which is male, of course. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, you're right. And they're saying, hang on a minute, cheetahs don't talk English. Why are we worried about <laughs> yeah. male or female? But uh, anyway, um, it was a, a really an amazing moment for you. Yes, I, I uh, was in the Jeep with, with my brother and a couple of... Uh, German tourists, nice people called Carl and Megita and, and Julius, our wildlife guide, and came across this cheetah female with her four cubs, and she was starting to hunt. And, and it was a hunt that I recorded, and we can hear that, so I don't necessarily need to talk about it. But we were there for an hour, and, um, and she hunted the eland. You then suggested to me, because I had recorded it, and you had listened to it, that we play around a wee bit with the format. And initially you said, write some script around what the, the female is thinking. Now, there are pros and cons to this kind of approach, John, that you and I have discussed. Uh, is it too anthropomorphic? Are we uh, ascribing uh, voices to animals? Uh, will people be critical? Blah, blah, blah. But what the heck? Uh, we decided that uh, the script that we would write would be based on scientific knowledge that we would understand about how the female uh, hunts for her her cubs, how she's teaching the cubs to hunt for themselves, and then eventually how she is going to wean those cubs and they have to go off and fend for themselves. And that's what we did. I've gone out of the land rover and we're walking behind Julius. The cheetah is literally 30 meters. This is the female and the cubs coming together. just lying down. I just can't believe how close we're getting to it. The beautiful evening sun with the mountains in the background. This wonderful African dusk. It's staring straight, straight at me. And the very classic teardrop markings from its eyes to its mouth and I come up beside Julius The calf was too small to feed all five of us It's nearly time to make them leave Maybe maybe this one last kill for them and then I shall strike out and leave them to themselves. They don't normally live in family groups like that, do they? No, not once. Uh, once they they 18 months. That is when she actually wins them. Yes. So uh, after that, they'll go separate ways. But if in this group there are the brothers, those brothers will form what we call a coalition, mm -hmm. meaning that they'll stay together for the rest of their lives. Then normally when they, there's two brothers, they stay in, 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 in the rain or in, in the territory for a very long period of time because they've got the strength to fight whosoever is coming to, to take their position.
And then uh, what, what's nice is the sort of juxtaposition of the uh, the drama, if you like, and the um, and the real science and and the the sort of fantasy imagination world of what's inside a cheetah's head and coming back into the real world. It's to me, you know, I'm not too worried about the anthropomorphism. I just um, <laughs> I just feel it's a way to you know get yourself more involved and imagine. Of course, the one thing that's blaringly obvious, John, is you're voicing the female cheetah. So if there's somebody out there who would like to uh, uh, try voicing that for us themselves, uh, we'd like to hear from them. Yeah, you know, I was going to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> Although, uh, you know, you could argue that uh, cheetahs don't speak English. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, they, they don't speak any language uh, uh, that we know of. Um, I mean, of course, they've got language amongst themselves and, and symbolism and so on but for the yeah. purposes of our format they speak perfectly good english and we're able to understand exactly what it is they're thinking and saying that's right so you know hopefully that'll evolve it's it's pretty experimental but i think it's good and so just to be clear that was your writing it was me reading and um putting some music and effects in as well um although there were some real effects there now we've that's another blurred boundary because Fergus, I know that from the very beginning of your radio career, you always did things completely genuinely. It would be very easy, some people said to me when I did uh, radio, uh, wildlife on the radio, that um, you could just put in sound effects and you'd have everything in the studio. But that's not the case, is it? Oh, I feel, I feel very, very uh, strongly about this. And I, I made a profession and will continue to make a profession of going out and recording in the in the wild. In fact, I remember my very first interview with John Sparks, who was the head of the Natural History Unit, who was the man responsible for filming that wonderful sequence with uh, Attenborough and the mountain gorillas. And I was sitting in front of him trying to persuade him to give me a job. Um, and they had just done a wildlife and one on the Gambia, I think. Now, this is over 30 years ago when they weren't able to use night vision. And I watched the wildlife and one and I threw down the gauntlet to him and I said, you know what, I think I could make a more spectacular wildlife and one um for radio than the one you've done for television it was an incredibly arrogant thing to say but uh, <laughs> i had i had that arrogant back arrogance back then and and the, the point i was making to him and by the way i did eventually get to the gambia and i did make a documentary with uh, another colleague um and we went hunting for dwarf crocodiles in the forest in the gambia but you bring someone like me into a forest with an expert um uh, in pitch black in a jungle just turn on your tape recorder and record the sounds and the noises and the conversation as you're walking through. It is hugely atmospheric and you certainly don't need to apply sound effects. It's there and it's there for us to record. And actually, John, I'm hoping that our conversations evolve into another trip where the two of us actually go and do some recording like this that we can put out and broadcast. Yeah, no, I think that's ideal, and and I really look forward to that. But the thing is that um, you can also play with the imagination, and of course, that's what uh, people who who write films and plays and and books that's what they do, and that's what is storytelling basically. In some ways, we get our cues directly from nature when we're walking in nature, but um, what we've got there, and as I say, it's experimental, is a hybrid between the two, which is uh, basically a, a, a constructed written bit and a real experience in the wild. Yes, and, I, and, and, and we should state that uh, we're, we're trying to base that on our own 
uh, zoological, biological knowledge, and of course, um, other knowledge that Wayne reads. So we'll try and keep it as um, scientifically authentic as possible. But I really do think it would be good to hear from other listeners. Do they like it? Do they not like it? Uh, any other suggestions for what we might do? Yeah, it's good. I mean, you can hear it even there where you where you say to yeah. the guide that uh, so the cheetahs are going to the young ones are going to have to leave, and then you've written in the in the imaginative text about uh, the mother just giving them one last meal or showing them how to hunt one last time. Well, it's innate and it's instinct, uh, but I I can't if I put my head into the and this is where this started. You you saying to me, put yourself in the head of that cheetah. So she's she's hunting. These didn't look like cubs to me. I thought they're, they are adults and, and she is on the verge of weaning them. And, and there has to be a point where she decides, right, that is the last meal and she moves off. But imagine the wrench. I can't imagine that all four will pack the bags and walk out as if they're going to university, um, as has happened to my, my daughter recently. But that, they might leave gradually. But, but for the mother and for the, the young cubs, uh, that has to be a wrench, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I should think, as you say, it's not... Uh... Sudden, suddenly they don't see each other again. I'm sure they're they're around. They probably team up again ever so often when they're young, and then uh, eventually, of course, they'll they'll run their own adult lives. Um, yeah, but uh, just in terms of being a program maker, you want the full palette of everything that's possible. And uh, yes, of course, scientific credibility is important, but it's mixing those things and making imaginative compositions, which interests me as well.